Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. The role of the UK and international education systems in the transition to a circular economy, brought to you in association with Chapman Taylor. Before I start, I want to say a big thank you to the event organisers, Emily Day, Tim Pine, Sophie and all at Footprint for once again creating a fantastic forum for like-minded individuals to come together. I'm Alexander Esfani, a senior architect at Chapman Taylor, studio champion of our responsible design group that promotes sustainability initiatives across our 15 global studios. We are master planners, uh, global architects and interior designers. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Jonathan Drewsbury, Chief Sustainability Officer of Department of Education, who is kindly going to present how education could be a key enabler of transitioning to a net zero and circular economy. Unfortunately, joint, uh, Alan Fogarty could not attend today, so he's going to be missing in this intro. Um, please use your Slido app to ask any questions, or if we're going to do it the sort of old-fashioned method, if you put your hand up, we'll be able to use the microphone to ask the questions. Thank you very much. Over to you, Jonathan. Good morning, um, and thank you for coming to listen. My name's John Dewsbury, and I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer at the Department for Education. So that means I have three main responsibilities. One is setting the strategy for the education system, universities, colleges, schools, and nurseries to make sure we transition to a net zero and sustainable future. And I'm held accountable to Parliament for the risks to education services from overheating, flood, and drought. But today, I want to talk to you about the critical role that we think in the Department for Education that education plays in a just transition to a net zero economy and a circular economy. I'm going to talk through the impacts of climate change on education, why we think in DfE this is a key enabler, and then pose a question to you on how you might help us solve this problem. So these, these factors will be familiar to you from your understanding of climate change more broadly. The impact of climate change in all sectors we know different in education. It will become too hot for, for many schools to operate. We know that heat has an impact on cognitive behaviour, has an impact on educational outcomes. We know it will be too wet. We've seen significant floods over the last 10 years around schools preventing access. There are 10,000 schools at risk of flood. With a one and a half degrees temperature rise, that will increase to 14,000 schools. And we know that schools require uh, a large amount of water to stay open and operate, and with water scarcity increasing, there's a risk to education services staying open during increasing droughts. Those risks may feel quite far-fetched from a UK perspective, but we can acutely see this happening around the world already. This is a picture from Mozambique following the cyclone in 2019, uh, which closed 600 schools, 3,500 classrooms, and 335,000 pupils were out of school for over six months. About three weeks ago, I was in London at the Education World Forum, which is where all the education ministers come from around the world to discuss the, th the challenges facing the education system. And they spoke around three things. They spoke around attendance. Attendance is always key to driving educational outcomes. They spoke about AI. I'll leave you to discuss the benefits or the risks of AI in, in the coffee break. And they spoke about the risk of climate change. I was, I was fortunate enough to sit with the South Sudan education minister and understand her perspective or the impacts of climate change on her education system. Given that she's got a war on her border, her priority was adapting to climate change. 
she spoke around how recent floods over low-laying land in South Sudan had led to 600 schools closing, um, and the floods still had not receded. The reality was that young people were turning up to go to school a foot in water with no teachers or no access. We see this impact so clearly in the global south, we need to make sure we're prepared and adapt for it in the rest of the world. I mean, it does, I can show you images like this. This is from a school in Harrow, and we, you see the, the, the impact uh, in the UK as well. But we're also at a really odd position in this, in that young people are incredibly angry about climate change. You'll have seen from the movements from Greta Thunberg and Fridays for Future, they're out protesting about the need for action on climate change. But studies by UNESCO show that worldwide people don't actually understand the principles of climate change, which to a room of people like you may come as a surprise. 70% um, of young people can't explain the principles of climate change and the science behind it. The UK is only a few percentage points ahead of the rest of the world in that sense. So we've got angry people about climate change who don't necessarily understand the principles of climate change and why they're angry about it. And the other key factor we think about here is a lack of connection to nature. So this diagram is a diagram from Professor Das Gupta's Economics of Biodiversity. And what one of the key conclusions from that uh, study commissioned by Treasury is that young people from mid-teens are disconnected with nature. That's not a new phenomenon, it's not associated with technology, it's something that's happened through our economics over the last 40 to 50 years, in that young people at very young ages are directly connected with nature. You'll see it potentially in your own families, that a two, three-year-old wants to be outside interacting and playing with dirt, etc. But as they move into their mid-teens, they disconnect and don't have a... Um, a longer-term relationship with nature. So if we think about the, the capital cycle, we think about produced capital as hard hats, road buildings, school, school buildings from my perspective. We think about natural capital in terms of forests, peat bogs, oceans, and we think about human capitals from my perspective, teachers or, um, or even the, the, the workforce or the, the pupils that graduate from schools, universities and colleges. We think there's a broken link between the natural capital and the human capital that we're driving through our education system. And I kind of that's where we started in trying to develop a strategy for thinking about how education can underpin a net zero economy and thus a circular economy. Education also has a massive opportunity here. There are 16 million young people in education currently, 8.2 million families associated with that. So a third of the population interact with education settings every day. Through education, we can help create 440,000 jobs in 2030. Schools spend an inordinate amount of money on uh, energy bills, over £1 billion. And we have a significant, in England alone, schools cover 691 kilometres squared, the same size as Exmoor National Park. If we thought about universities, colleges, the, U the Scottish and the Welsh schools on top of that, it's a significant uh, portion of the UK. DfE is also one of the UK's largest construction buyers. So we went on a journey in developing a strategy, and the first thing we did was took about 25 letters to the Secretary of State from young people really angry about sustainability and climate change. And we went and met those young people and asked them what they wanted to happen in the education system to prepare them for a changing world. And through that, we, decided, we came up with four strategic, four strategic objectives. The first around preparing them for a very changing world, make sure they have the skills, and the education for a world that will be very different from today. I think about my own daughter in this case, she's um, just turned five, 
and she will graduate or go into work um, in the late 2030s. And the economy that she'll be operating in will be very different to the economy she's being, she, that we are working in right now. We, of course, need to hit net zero. We need to mitigate the further impacts of climate change. The education system contributes 36% of emissions to uh, public sector estate, which is the biggest contributor over NHS and uh, MOD. We need to make sure our education services are resilient to the effects of climate change. So how do we prepare for flood, overheating and drought and make sure they stay open? We've seen from COVID-19 the impacts on educational outcomes from lost learning. And we know that those, the cost of those educational outcomes on the economy are humongous. And we want to leave an environment that is better for a future generation to reverse nature's decline, to reverse biodiversity uh, descendancy or, or remove, move away from biodiversity collapse. And so therefore we've set out a strategy that rather than focusing on individual sectors, rather than talking about higher education, rather than talking about schools, a whole systems approach to how we might adapt this. So how do we educate young people around climate change and make sure they understand the principles and know the opportunities and the careers in there? So tell them about the knowledge, the science, give them truth, give them hope, but also take them through the many runways that can lead into green skills and careers. How do we use our estate as an exemplar? We're one of the biggest construction buyers in the UK. We have 80,000 buildings, 24,000 schools. If you're learning in an environment that's net zero or nature-based, it has a massive impact on those 60 million people passing through that system. So how do we inspire that generation to work in those types of buildings? Schools alone, so ignoring colleges and nurseries, spend 15, million a year, 15 billion sorry, a year on procurement activities. And that's not construction related. So through supplies, um, stationery, etc. How do we make sure that's done in the most sustainable way? One of the initiatives we're looking at, for example, is female hygiene products. How do we make sure natural material-based female hygiene products are available for free in all schools and change that transition of how um, products are designed and used within schools? And I started the presentation talking about the scale and in internationally. We in the UK have a responsibility to the international community to lead and help convene. And uh, so how do we bring together education systems across the world to adapt and change the risks fa facing them? And so in order to do that, we've put out three cost-cutting uh, strategies. One is to inspire reconnection with nature. This is the concept of the National Education Nature Park, which I'll talk about in a second, and the Climate Action Award. One is how do we help education settings plan for change? This is around sustainability, leadership, and climate action plans. And how do we demonstrate real progress on nature and emissions targets? So the National Education Nature Park. This is a concept that if you bring all the land together of schools, colleges, universities, and put them as one national, national park, and empowered the young people to treat it as a national park, and improve the biodiversity and the nature of it, we have a massive impact on the biodiversity of the UK, which is the worst in Europe. Alongside that, we've got a co-curricular climate action award to make sure young people are engaged in data analytical, scientific, and nature-based projects to really understand the skills they require for a very different economy. Uh, last week, we announced 15 million pounds to the most nature-deprived schools, colleges, and nurseries in order them to do direct projects on their sites. That might be increasing access to um, areas of their site because they can't access them, or sadly, even buying welly boots. So some schools don't access the outdoors because they don't have sufficient equipment to, to go outside. This all goes live in autumn 2023. Um, and as part of that, we'll be looking at the infrastructure and the outdoor classroom spaces will we, we'll, we'll be associated with that. 
The other way we look to inspire, which perhaps might hone in a bit more of your interests, is around the UK's building programs. So we set a standard for all our new builds to be resilient to a two degrees temperature rise, sorry, designed for a two degrees temperature rise and resilient to a four degrees temperature rise. And all of our new builds are net zero in operation already. So we opened our first net zero in operation school, centrally delivered from, uh, in August last year, um, treetops in Essex. We're also pushing a bit further through our Gen Zero platform, which is a completely low carbon platform solution for um, both plug and play plant rooms and also um, construction of school buildings and colleges. We've committed to building four schools and one college out of completely natural material by 2025. We want to use this as a catalyst to drive the change. We have a vision that by 28, 29, all of our school buildings will be built out of natural material. So any support you can do in helping us to drive that change is greatly appreciated. So we spoke about Inspire. We inspire through connecting young people to nature and we inspire by driving innovation through our building technology. And then we want to help the system plan for that change. So we've committed that all education settings will have a climate action plan in place by 2025. And this will cover how they teach about sustainability and climate change, how they adopt a culture within the school or college setting, how they operate and procure in a sustainable way, how they adapt to the, the impacts of climate change, how they decarbonize, and then how do they restore biodiversity through the nature park and other elements like that. We've just um, announced a five million pound program to support that drive and a, a network of local expertise that will be funding, which I imagine lots of organizations will want to get involved in and uh, help support local settings in terms of taking them on that journey in terms of setting out a climate action plan. Because you think about schools as an example, it's an obvious thing to say, but they're there to teach. They're not there to plan a response to climate change. And so if we can use the system to help drive them and make them resilient to, to the effects of climate change, and at the same time upskill the industry supporting them, that's a brilliant opportunity. And I suppose that's the other place we plan. I've just pulled out two of the sectors I just think might be interesting for you. Heat in buildings, we know we need 350,000 FTE in construction, that's a 13% increase. Um, we need 35,000 qualified heat pump engineers uh, by 2028. We know in forestry a large portion of that sector is going to retire, so we need a 10%, uh, so I think a 2,000 increase by 2025. And so then we've committed with um, the Department for Energy, I always say BASE, Department for Energy, Net Zero and Energy Security. Um, and industry to delivering a net zero and workforce plan by, net, by 2024. So we've got starter and finisher, finisher groups with each of the sectors and each industry to set out what workforce they require and then look at our skills programs and how we flex those skills programs to deliver the change required. We're investing incredible sums in our skills programs from our T-levels, which is our technical um, A-level equivalent, um, through our Institute of Technology, through our apprenticeships and our skills boot camps to train and retrain young people and adult learners into a very different economy. So we've done the inspire, we've done the plan, and then finally the act. We want to be able to demonstrate actionable change in this space. So we're building emission and climate risk systems to make sure we can tell schools exactly where their climate risk is, what their emissions are, and how they fare compared to their neighboring school, and try and get a peer-to-peer -peer learning so they understand how to drive through change. And, there, and there's a hard legislation behind this. I have a responsibility in my role to uh, Parliament and the Climate Change Act to make sure that we improve the vulnerability of the education system to flood, overheating and drought. And therefore we want to look across the country and understand where are our schools most vulnerable to coastal erosion, most vulnerable to uh, water scarcity. 
So if we go back to the biodiversity capital cycle that I put up at the start, what we're trying to do, you can see around the outside of this, is act as a catalyst to improve that cycle and reconnect human capital to natural capital to produce capital. So in terms of reconnecting with nature, so how do we connect natural capital to human capital? We've got the National Education Nature Park and the Climate Action Award. We're launching Natural History GCSE. I always call it the Dave Attenborough GCSE, but that's going live in 2025. We're leading on some biophilic design. We think, I'm sure someone in the room will, will, will challenge this, we think we've delivered the first biophilic primary school um, at St Mary's, this, uh, and it's opening this, in this, this summer. Um, we're looking really at low-carbon low nature-based solutions, so people, young people interact with nature as they work through their learning day. In terms of increasing the, the link between human capital and produced capital, I've set out we've got the Net Zero uh, and Nature Workforce Plan and how we're investing significant money in skills programs. In terms of any innovation to drive that link between human and produced capital, we're looking at energy pods, so how do we retrofit and plug and play existing school heating systems with um, renewable heating systems? And how do we uh, pioneer and push that we want the education system to be a leader in delivering natural-based building solutions? And then we're helping the system to plan and recover from the pollution that already exists or the emissions that already exist through our climate action plans, through our reporting systems, by setting biodiversity targets and by setting scientific-based emissions targets. And so just to finish, I think there's a challenge back to you here in that the department has allocated around 12 billion to improve school buildings condition over the last, uh, since 2015, so over the last eight years. In the last financial year, we invested 1.8 billion. Our school rebuilding program, net zero in operation, uh, will deliver 50 schools a year. But if you look at the scale of the education estate, it represents about 2% of the estate. So what do we need to do together? Education underpins our, our economy in every way. So what do we need to do together to make sure that we inspire that 16 million people in, in education, 8.4 million people who associate with education settings every day, to create a model around finance, energy generation, nature-based solutions, so we can deal with that other 98% before 2030 or 2035. Thank you for your time. Fantastic presentation. Thank you for that, Jonathan. That was a fantastic presentation. The depth and breadth of the scale of what you're tackling from a circular economy perspective and sustainability initiatives is fascinating, from grassroots to global recognition. We can delve into that a bit more uh, in detail later. The concept of circular economy in construction revolves around designing, building, operating frameworks and infrastructure in a way that minimizes waste, promotes resource efficiency, and encourages the reuse, recycling, and regeneration of material. What does it mean in your field, Jonathan, circular economy, if we were to define it as a broad spectrum? Thanks, Alex. So I think for us, the circular economy is around thinking about the three broad principles of education, the skills for the economy, and using our construction, I've said it several times, but as a, one of the biggest buyers of construction, how we uh, use that as a catalyst to provide um, the right human capital that moves around that cycle. Um, they're our biggest asset, you know, 60 million people coming through education. So the, cir the circle economy that we're looking at is around the link between skills, education, 
and the industries that require them. So not just in construction and buildings, but in the energy and the power sector, all those things. And how do we join that loop up and make sure we have a strong links between them? Where do you see the challenges that you face on that? Is it through the supply chain initiatives? So I think one of the key issues we face is really chicken and egg, as in when we talk to industry all the time, they say, oh, we don't have the right skills programs. And then we talk to industry, and they, so we talk to, you know, we look at our skills programs, and think we have a really varied amount of skills programs, and we don't get the uptake from young people. So I think the biggest challenge is people having confidence that there is a certainty in these jobs to come. And that's why we in DFE are trying to really show through our own building programs that we are committed to nature-based solutions, to net zero, and all these, uh, and sustainability in order to set a pathway and a confidence for the sector and industry to start investing in it. Perfect. You obviously briefly touched upon nature-based solutions and obviously that application for us as architects is a clear synergy from placemaking and master planning. What are the key crucial nature-based solutions that you would say needs to be implemented um, into a circular economy? So if I talk about it from my perspective, the one thing that we are really worried about is um, educational output from overheating. Um, so we're doing some quite in-depth research with, with various universities across the country to look out what is the impact on the outcome and thus the economy if we're operating in classrooms that are becoming too hot. Um, there are examples you may know of or you've seen, but you know, for the first time ever last summer we had schools closed because of overheating. Um, we've, seen, uh, we've been lucky in that those heat, those, those heat waves have hit outside of um, exam season. If they'd hit an exam season, what impact would that have had on it on exam outcomes? So, in answer to your question, we see nature-based solutions as crucial to providing an environment that is comfortable and maximised to achieve educational outcomes. And we know there's loads of research showing that if you're taught in a nature-based classroom, we built a prototype of um, a completely uh, natural material classroom up at COP26, where we brought world leaders together for the first time to talk about the role of education in climate change. And the feeling that pupils have when they're in that building and their attainment and their concentration is so much more improved than a traditional built building. And so we see it central to make sure that our estate moves towards a nature-based solution um, to improve educational outcomes. And is that in particular with the biophilia aspect that you've been implementing as well? Yeah, so I think we're at the stage where we're trying lots of different things. We've got um, a really strong architectural team within the department that are looking at different parts, and they're working with people in the audience, um, you know, from, from Cundall to Mott McDonald's to various different organizations, um, around seeing what is the right nature-based solution to retrofit our education estate and make sure it's, it's fit for the future. And thinking about how nature-based solutions help us adapt. Simple things like planting, which is where the nature part comes in, because if we restore the biodiversity of the education estate, which you know, many schools don't have any outdoor space, they have purely tarmacked areas, if they have a playing field, they're often mowed, like, repeatedly. Um, and they often don't have access for communities. They're, they're normally fenced off. So how do we change that approach to the connection between school sites and the community and make them centers of nature within communities? Because they are central to communities um, in most places. The three or four institutions are generally central to most communities. Amazing. The scale of work that you're tackling at DFE is amazing. Aren't it? Wondering if you could briefly touch on the aspects of what you're looking at with Energy Pod and Gen Zero. Your I was hoping Alan was going to be here from Cundall because <laughs> they uh, are leaving a technical bit of this. But um, essentially, we're looking at. I, I referred to our rebuilding rate, which is, which is which is we're doing 50 schools a year, which is you know over one and a half billion pound investment a year, which is not an insignificant amount of money. But if you look at the scale of what we're doing, 
is still not quick enough. And there are sort of six or seven prototypes of buildings from Edwardian to Victorian to 2000 to 1980s that will need retrofitting in some way. And this is where the energy pod technology comes in, is how could we replace existing heating systems with and electrify hot water through um, plug and play renewable energy heating pod, energy pods. Um, so we, we've just procured for technical providers to help us deliver those, and then we want to try and pilot that through next year at trialing out on different prototype schools. And we see it at some point in the future, rolling that out at scale, um, subject to obviously treasury and finding money, etc. Well, Mikutsu Research is showing now that actually 1.8 trillion euros um, is effectively by 2030, it's going to be generated as revenue through circular economy. And that's going to be effective by addressing mounting resource-related challenges, creating jobs, spurring innovations, and generating environmental benefits. How much is this all going to cost to implement? Because you, you talked about the notion of the, the costing of it, but where is it all going to be coming from? So I think cost is a really interesting question, isn't it? If you look at the problem linear, linearly, you come up with one answer. And if you look at it from a circular perspective, you come up with a very different answer. So I could tell you, for us to replace every single boiler on the education estate is going to cost 44 billion pounds. It's 1,600 boilers a year. That's what, if we were to hit net zero by 2050. There isn't a world where any government in the world is, is giving 44 billion to replace boilers on an education system because the priority will be around teaching, etc. Um, so we need to think about this in a different way. I suppose that was one of my questions. We need to think about how do we bring private finance together with um, energy generation, with nature-based solutions, and with, with a pipeline of, of uh, building projects to set up a different model on how we fund these things. And I think we're actively exploring that policy at the moment, so I'd welcome any thoughts or, or views on that and happy to talk to people afterwards about how that might um, land. What sort of innovations are you seeing, this, um, seeing happen in the industry that's enabling you to transition to that circular economy? I mean, when, when you talk about industry, are you talking about he, uh, buildings and uh, property industry, or are you talking yeah, about... Yeah, bu buildings. Well, obviously, you're looking at it at the wider sort of systems, frameworks perspective. Yeah, so, I mean, because we look at across sort of the 18 sectors, from agriculture to power through to, to see where, if our skills programs are aligned across those. And I think um, we're seeing loads of innovation in how universities and colleges are delivering the skills programs. Uh, um, I'm sure people are aware of the example, I can't remember the name of it, but there's the new university in Wales, which is taking a completely biophilic approach to how they educate. Um, so we're seeing some amazing innovation in the education system on how they're preparing young people uh, for a very different economy. So I was down in um, Bristol at uh, Free Mayor's School, and they've got um, a large multicultural uh, intake of people all around the world. And they started off looking at all the flags from each of their individual countries of their pupils. And they realized that actually, if they started talking about this from the lens of UN sustainability goals and embed that through their curriculum, they could start training advocates of the, of the future. And they've done a really amazing model with the, with the existing national curriculum on how they innovate that curriculum and drive through a skills and a knowledge change to make sure they're more prepared for the future. So I guess I've spoken from a, an education industry perspective, um, which is amazing to see the innovation from there. In terms of building technology, I mean, just walking around here, you can see some of it. Um, I also think a lot of the technology exists already. It's just bringing it to the front and making sure people adopt it and specify it and use it. I, was, I, I did my um, PhD in reusing foundations 
um, I was interested to see a poster over there about reusing foundations and the challenge that we were facing in 2000 around reusing foundations on buildings are still the same challenges and so it feels like needs to be more more drive and more commitment to actually practically implementing some of these changes. Amazing. I mean, not to answer my own sort of question, but from a sort of architect's perspective, we're seeing this sort of existential shift, obviously with artificial intelligence, people are either going to be loving it or being sick of it at the end of it, but we're seeing that actually software generation and the likes of Autodesk Former, for example, we're testing it and we're finding that AI-led technology is actually fast-tracking our way of being able to test iterative solutions to actually get the operational carbon efficiencies down and get the embodied carbon notions right down to the T. So it's going to be exciting to see where it's going to, it's still in its infancy, and even though it's as amazing as it is, but where it's going to be leading in the future, I think it's the technology that's going to be able to bridge that gap of the targets of the 2030 and the 2050 notions to it. The challenge in all of that though is just thinking around, it's the same way if you look at numerical modeling, you know, 3D numerical modeling in 1990 was done over 400 computers, it's now can be done on your laptop. Yep. The, the ability for AI and numerical modeling to output at a sensible is all dependent on the user who understands the problem they're trying to diagnose. And that then goes back to making sure that we're teaching the right skills and the right knowledge for people who are then, if we look at our engineering pipeline, how do we make sure those engineers are understanding the principles of what they're designing or delivering and how that interacts with AI and numerical modeling basically. Are you seeing any psychological or behavioural factors that influence consumer attitudes, um, behaviours towards circular economy, and how that promotes more sustainable consumption patterns? So, I mean, that's one of the, the key, the key things we think the Department for Education should be doing in this space is trying to work out how we drive informed consumer choice um, around. I, I've spoken quite a bit about there being 16 million people. It's a massive audience. You don't get that access to an audience in many other government sectors. Um, so how do we um, take them on a journey and have a psychological connection to nature and therefore make the right informed choices about the purchases they make or the, or the career choices they make, etc. Um, so our commitment to deliver climate action plans in all schools, colleges, universities and nurseries by 2025, our expectation is those climate action plans are developed with pupils, teachers, governors and the community together. So they set out a holistic approach about how they move, how they adapt, how they decarbonize, how they teach, etc. Um, so we really feel that we're fundamental in that, in that place and that's why we're putting you know, the five million pound support behind that to try and drive um, a central organization to deliver that change. Obviously Gravitas is a topic that you're covering is easily adapted to other disciplines and fields. We've obviously got other um, other architects, developers, local authorities. How do you see the work that you're doing so far supporting this? And given that time is of the essence, is there a way to streamline that knowledge pool that you're developing to help support other industries and sectors? So how can we streamline the knowledge pool? So I, I think one of the things we have to be really careful of is trying to pigeonhole into certain um, careers or certain um, specific skills because if you look um, at the global literacy rates or the global numeracy rates and then thus at the UK literacy and numeracy rates there is there is an ask of us to make sure that we get the fundamentals of education right first and then give people the different runways one of the former Secretary of States used to talk about runways and I, I quite liked it so I, I repeat that now um, 
how do we create as many runways into different careers as possible? Um, so if you've given someone a base, a, re a knowledge, and a, an in-depth understanding, how do you then give them the right runways into different careers that will support a different economy? Um, I think we have to be really careful of, you know, the, the role of maths is really important, um, which is why you know, the government has announced the maths to 18. That's not about all people doing A-level maths, it's about making sure that people have a base competency of maths at 18 years old, because they know there's a cognitive benefit of doing that in terms of how you learn, how you develop, if you take maths to an older age. As part of our company, we've, we work across 15 global studios, but we've noticed that obviously the UK initiatives are far, far ahead compared to some of our counterparts in Shanghai, Czech, and you, you briefly touched upon the aspect of the global ambition. How do you transfer that knowledge? How do you take yeah. it to the next level? So I think we can talk a lot to this. So at COP26, we, for the first time ever, brought education and environment ministers together to talk about uh, the role of, well, the intersection of climate change and education. At COP27, we, we continue that argument. And in the sidelines of COP27, we managed to bring UAE, who are hosting COP28, together on board with us with UNESCO and the UN. So at COP28 now, we've got um, a commitment from the UAE, who the, the president for, for, for this coming COP, to have a whole day on it on, edu climate, on education and the role of climate change, and then try and bring leaders together on day three in terms of a summit. So we, as the UK, are one of two key sponsors, alongside Japan, of sponsoring um, the Greening Education Partnership, which is a, um, a vehicle proposed by the UN around making sure all education systems are looking at greening their curriculum, greening their communities, greening their buildings, and uh, make sure they have green skills for the future. So we very much see the UK as a, as a leading convener in that, in that world. Got sharing one. best practice and make sure we're learning from other countries. You know, likes of Pakistan, when we visited there to see, you know, they're seeing the impact of flood immediately. So how are they adapting their education system uh, to keep it going in a, in a very changing world? Awesome. Got, got one last question for you, but there's been a flurry of uh, questions from Fiona Slider, so apologies you sent this earlier. Um, with reference to National Nature Park, could you see DFE combining with Housing Association land assets to increase the size and diversity of the park? Uh, I see no, no reason why not. Um, so the National Education Nature Park has been delivered by the Natural History Museum and the Royal Horticultural Society. We have ambitions that this can be global. Um, so it can take in other sectors from the UK, definitely can take in housing, etc. Um, we're doing some work with Department for Transport about how you link up some of the biodiversity along key art um, artery routes through the UK to make sure that the biodiversity alongside schools on the routes between houses and schools is improved. So I think that's a great idea and we will definitely explore it. Although with any great idea we have to start and so we're starting with schools and colleges and nurseries and universities and then once we've got some traction in that space we will look to how we can expand it and we've had interest from Mexico, uh, from Italy who want to try and join that network and that this have a worldwide nature park potentially. A uh, question from Freya. How will nurseries be supporting in retrofitting the older buildings without closing for a few weeks? Many are privately owned. How is this being incentivized? Sorry, say that again? How will nurseries be supporting in retrofitting the older buildings without closing for a few weeks? Many are privately owned. How is this being incentivized? Um, it's a good question, isn't it? So, so I have responsibility for the maintained nursery estate so not for the, the PBIs 
um, so private um, private nurseries. Um, so from a, a public nursery perspective, they can access the public sector decarbonisation fund, which we've secured at least 30% of that fund will go to education settings. Um, in terms of uh, private nurseries, I think it faces the same challenge as the housing sector. And, I, and, and a lot of nurseries are in you know, big Victorian houses. So I, I think there's probably a solution in with um, DLUC and uh, housing agenda and how we resolve that for private nurseries. Good answer. Uh, you've briefly touched upon this, but how could procurement in public sector bring nature-based solutions and circular economy thinking into mainstream supply chains? Well, I, th I think that's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to show a, a demonstrable path um, by committing to building at least uh, five completely natural school buildings in the next 18 months with the hope that we eventually swap all of our building programs out for natural-based solutions. So we're trying to show that we are committed to this um, and therefore we want the sector to, I mean, I know that this, in, in terms of the, the property and building sector, there, there are some amazing solutions out there already who are doing some great things. So how do they start bringing those solutions directly onto our, our frameworks that exist already rather than going back to traditional building techniques, which are driven by cost maybe, I suppose. So we need to look at that. I think also, we are actively exploring a policy, so we have to have individual conversations about how do we bring in a financial model alongside a retrofit model, alongside an energy generation model. We know the, the impacts of um, energy security um, and, and uh, nature-based solutions and climate change are not going away, so we need to come up with a longer-term solution that we can roll out over time and accelerate change. Um, and we need to make that change between 25 and 35 based on the science. This question's for your sort of engineering background, so oh no. Grace. <laughs> at what point will it be un unacceptable to use a product in construction that can't be reused or repurposed? I don't know. I think, I think it's fair to say I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but this, this will be driven by behavioral change and how people think about how they design things. Um, I don't know, what do you think? Good, good question. Um, I Five think minutes remaining. I think ultimately, I think upcycling is going to be key. And inevitably, if you can upcycle, it's not just about recycling. If you can upcycle it to get the, the reuse of the product and actually get the longevity of the product, that'll be essential. But it has to come at a balance to where there's the fine line of embodied carbon. If you're upcycling and it costs you more embodied carbon in the long run than actually the, the raw material or the initiation of that product, then it's a bit of a balancing act on that part, I would say. I think one of the other things that will help is the, is the the contractual framework you use to deliver it. So I, I was visiting Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership at the University of Cambridge, and they've got a their building is uh, they completely refurbed the building, and every every piece of furniture has been re, uh, upcycled or used from somewhere else, etc. And the, the, the key finding that they said is they took a really long time over the contractual relationships between architect, designer, engineer and client to make sure they had the time and space to, to deliver it. And I think that's probably something we'd have to look at. We set up our delivery on time, cost and quality. Can time still be a key factor if we're trying to, do, to deliver something in a circular way? I d so it's probably something to explore around the contractual setup. So you did know the answer. <laughs> um, two, two last questions, one from uh, Eleanor. 
Are there any strategies for specifically addressing the variation in engagement in nature between children from different ethnic or economic groups? Uh, yeah, great question. So great question. Um, the 15 million pounds worth of grants we've um, uh, announced last week are specifically targeted at um, disadvantaged children and children with particular backgrounds that would not otherwise get access to nature. So we've looked analytically across the, the school population and the college and nursery population to see where we need to intervene the most, so who wouldn't get access to nature otherwise. Um, so any policy that we deliver obviously conforms to the Public Sector Equalities uh, Act. So we make sure we really look at that analytically to see that all our interventions are targeted in the right way. Um, and and that and that's, is really important when we think about this to not... When we, uh, the Climate Action Award, as an example, was the thing we want to do is to inspire young people to connect and do scientific biodiversity-based projects. The feedback from young people is they, want it to be called a, they don't want it to be called a leadership award. They find that um, too off-putting. And disadvantaged children want to do it as groups. They don't want to do it as individuals. They want to work through as groups. So we're very much setting out our Climate Action Award as a group-based project around action. People keep referring to it as the Duke of Edinburgh Award, and we're trying to move away from that because the Duke of Edinburgh has a, an association with um, uh, higher social economical groups to, uh, receiving that award. So we're very much trying to make sure that our initiatives are based in um, those that really need access to nature the most because of the well-being and the uh, education outcomes it will drive. Great answer. Right, last but not least, if, I can leave, if you could leave everyone here with one thing to take away from your presentation and this debate, we have a culmination of different disciplines in this room. What are the key changes we need to introduce? If it's one last thing that we need to introduce into the industry that will help us collectively along the way to a circular economy. That's a really difficult question. <laughs> um, so I, I think if I speak from my perspective, I think come with us, I guess, is, is the one thing I'd say. We, we want to, we're trying to, I'm battling this on lots of different fronts. So across government, I'm still fighting to get to the table with other government departments and say, actually, education is key here. Education is key to underpinning our change. And actually, we need the the buildings, the property, the engineering sector, architects, planners, financiers, to recognise that as well. The pipeline of people coming through that is massive. So I think it's, it's not the DfE strategy, it's actually the UK's education strategy. And it's our strategy. And education underpins our economy massively. And if we don't get it right, and we don't prepare our young people for a world that's very different, we won't ever hit a circular economy. So I guess it's come with us. Great answer. Right, a big thank you to everyone for listening to that. And um, a round of applause for Jonathan. Thanks very much.